Thank you, Greg. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. We're going to look at uh, what most commentators believe is the most difficult of all of Jesus' parables to interpret. So we're going to attempt to interpret it tonight. Luke chapter 16, we're going to just read the first 15 verses. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended that dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. As I mentioned a moment ago, this is one of the most difficult of Jesus' parables to interpret. And the reason is because Jesus chooses to use an unjust or dishonest manager or steward as his main character. He's commending this dishonest steward. In the parable, Jesus emphasizes one admirable quality, just one. And that admirable quality was evidenced by this dishonest manager. The rest of his actions, I think we'll all agree, were corrupt. They were absolutely uh, without merit. But apparently he has one significant quality that believers, Jesus says, should seek to emulate. This is what's called the argument from the lesser to the greater. 
If something is true in its lesser state, then you can be very certain that it'll be true in its greater state. If this quality is admirable, if it is expedient in the life of a reprobate, imagine what it will be like in the life of a regenerate person, a true believer. This is Jesus' point, and we're going to explore this. Now, the parable, as we read it, is pretty straightforward in, in, through the first eight verses. Would you agree? A wealthy man owns what is, in effect, a large wholesale agricultural products business. His chief manager has been found dishonest and has been wasting the rich man's money. The owner tells the manager that he's going to fire him. Now, the dishonest guy is in a quandary. He knows he's about to lose his cushy management job, so he strategizes a bill reduction strategy. And the numbers are large, to, I think, to make the point of the enormity of their debt and the extravagance of his forgiveness of large portions of that debt. Verse 8 closes the parable and pivots to Jesus' point and his comments about the nature of money. Look with me and reread verses 8 and 9 with me. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into ever-eternal dwellings. The parable is, again, one of the most powerful and insightful teachings about money given in the whole Bible. This is one of the most significant teachings about money. And it's so because Jesus' main point in the parable is that the people of light, believers, typically, should be as shrewd in using money as the people of the world are. Should Christians be shrewd in the use of money as the people in the world are? Yeah. Should we know how to use money as skillfully in establishing relationships as unbelievers are? This is Jesus' main point. Lest we miss the astonishing significance of Jesus' point, it is this. We as Christians should be using our money, the money that God entrusts to us, in such shrewd ways that when our stewardship of it ends, and when does our stewardship of money end? That's right, when we die. That we will have invested in a myriad of friends who will welcome us into our heavenly home. Now, we don't typically think that way, but we gain some insight from that parable about that particular issue, that particular dynamic. When I go to heaven, I don't want people to say, oh, here comes that cheapskate. <laughs> here comes that guy that was just into his own self and into his own money, accumulating lots of stuff for himself. Oh, here, here comes that generous man that was generous with what God entrusted to him. We should... We should shrewdly, I believe, use the privilege of grace giving. What's the phrase I used? Grace. grace giving. The very essence of giving is graciousness, isn't it? We should be people who are gracious givers. And we should use that privilege 
to give, to invest in the salvation, to invest in the spiritual growth, to invest in the loving development of as many people as we can. Is that what the church is here for? The church is here, what, to expand the kingdom and to make a difference in as many lives as we possibly can. Discipleship, evangelization, growth, community, fellowship. And you see, as we do that, and as we invest our money that way, that's exactly what we're doing. We're investing it in the kingdom. We're not just spending it. We're investing in the kingdom. This is Jesus' point. And that has to be our point also. Hey, I'm investing with God in what he's doing. We're investing in advancing the gospel cause. We're investing in making countless friends who will recognize us as friends throughout all eternity. Now, developing that point of using earthly money, earthly finances, to make eternal friends, Jesus also underscores five facts about money. Let me just run through these real quickly with you. Now, I'm going to try to go fast so you miss some blanks. You can get the CD after the service and listen to it on your own. In verse 9, he tells us, money will ultimately fail. It's not if it will fail, it's when it will fail. It will ultimately fail. In verse 10, he tells us money is a very little thing. In verse 11, he tells us money is not the true riches. But God gives us those later if we are faithful. Verse 12, he says money which belongs to another is simply to test our faithfulness as a manager so that God can ultimately reward us with our own. And finally, verse 13, Jesus says, money is also a test to see if we will serve God only and not riches. So the bottom line, really, is our, is our attitude about money in line with Jesus' attitude? Do we look at this the way Jesus looks at it? Partially or wholly? Are we shrewd in our use of the resources that God has entrusted to us. Like everything else in life, it all boils down to this. It's a matter of attitude, isn't it? Everything in life, it's simply a matter of attitude. The average person, I submit to you, doesn't really believe that he or she has a problem when it comes to money and finances. I have no problem, just like the alcoholic the drug addict, the porn addict, you go on and on and on. When confronted, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. <laughs> but I submit to you, there are many, many, many people today, even Christians, who, who do not know how to handle money. The money that God has entrusted to them. As long as I can make my payments, as long as I can have a little mad money to play with, as long as I can have a little extra to uh, splurge on myself and uh, indulge myself from time to time, I'm okay. But there's much more to, to handling money than just those things. Would you agree? I want to share one simple truth. You see, many, many people today, and lots of Christians, are over their head in debt. They have a mass debt. They've bought things from people they don't know to please people that they don't care about. 
things that they don't even need. I mean, that about sums it up. Many people are in debt. And they're gullible uh, beyond belief about interest. Now, I want to just share this one thought with you. If you are paying interest on anything, it doesn't matter what a great interest rate you got. Don't we like to brag about that? Oh, man, I got this great interest rate. If you're paying interest on anything, regardless of the rate or regardless of how low your monthly payment may be, if you're paying interest on anything, you are losing money. You are losing money. In fact, when you see the word interest, if you visualize two words in huge letters written in the sky, these two words are someone else. Maybe that will help you better comprehend the principle. Every time you pay interest, someone else is getting rich off of your money. It's that simple. Larry Burkett, who has gone home to be with the Lord, was a financial guru in the Christian community a number of years ago. And based on his experience and his surveying and dealing with people, he estimated that probably across the board in the Christian community, people were paying three times interest than they would have been giving back to the Lord. In other words, they're giving a pittance, but their interest rate is just horrendous. Three times what they would give to the Lord. That shocked me when I read that. I wouldn't have a category for that. But that's what he said. So here's the picture. The average person, and probably the average Christian, may be over their head in debt, and because they're over their head in debt, they are walking in rebellion to God. Let me say that again. If you've allowed yourself to get into debt, you are walking in rebellion to God. Some people definitely have a problem. Would you agree? Now, all of us can get out of debt. Do you believe that? If you're in debt, you can get out of debt, but you have to really want to get out of debt. The first step you need to do is to check your attitude about money. Turn over to 1 Chronicles with me in the Old Testament. And this is huge for us if we are to have a right attitude towards money. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, this is the, the last chapter of the book, David is praising God and thanking God because he's just taken an offering for the building of the temple. And they've taken this enormous offering. It's a free will offering. Everybody gave. And so David's prayer goes this way, verse, verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. 
But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David acknowledged two things. He acknowledged first the sovereignty of God in that prayer, and he acknowledged also that, he, that God owns it all. Everything that David had, God owned. Now, if you and I are going to have financial success, if we're going to have freedom, if you will, in our personal life, in our family life, our business life, in our church life, then we're going to have to do the same. We're going to have to acknowledge that God is sovereign over everything and that everything we have is his. I want to share with you three lies that sound like the truth. They're lies. They're not the truth, but they sound like the truth. Some of you remember these. They do bear repeating. This is the first lie. All the church talks about is money. You hear that all the time. All the church, all the critics, all the church talks about is money. Now remember, don't be misled. That's a lie. I haven't taught on this subject in over two years. I would submit to you the church doesn't talk enough about money and how to be shrewd managers of it. Consequently, Christians are among some of the worst money managers in the world, even though they ought to be the best. As Christians, we should, we should be leading the world in the management of money. But we don't. Why don't we? Well, we believe the lie that all the church does is talk about money. And then that trips people up continually. Oh, he's talking about money. Oh, he's talking about money. I'm taking names, by the way, next week. Because <laughs> I'm talking about money for the next four weeks. You know I stand out there. You know I know almost everybody in this church. And I know what service you come to. Because if you come to an odd service, I say, what are you doing here? <laughs> so don't be running and hiding because you know what I'm going to talk about ahead of time. <clears throat> the devil convinces us the weakness of our flesh, because our flesh, what? Our flesh loves this stuff, doesn't it? And the devil gets a foothold in our flesh, and he convinces us that all the church does is talk about money. So whenever the issue of money comes up, we're already reactionary. We're already resistant. We're already maybe even offended. Oh, man. Why is this so? So that you and I simply would not listen to what God has to say. Do you think the devil wants us to know and understand what God says? No, of course not. If the devil can get you upset, if the devil can get you annoyed, you won't listen and you'll miss the truth that can set you free. Now, if you're upset right now, if you're uncomfortable right now, if you're nervously squirming, you're already here, take a breath, relax, you're going to be fine. You see, Satan's goal as the deceiver is to set us up so we will not listen to what God wants us to know. And as long as we don't know what God wants us to know, we can't possibly do what God wants us to do. And the result? We're kept in bondage. So what do we need to do to avoid that? We need to change our attitude right in the face of the devil. We need to say to the devil, you know, my church needs to talk more about money and help people like me solve my financial problems and get out of debt. We have some very capable financial counselors in our church. 
And we'd talk to people regularly who were, who were, who were in real financial problems. And if you're in that situation, you need to come and get some counsel, talk to one of our elders, talk to our financial counseling team. So what's lie number one? Okay, here's lie number two. Ready? Money and things can satisfy me. Sure sounds like the truth, doesn't it? But it's not. It's a lie. Money and things cannot satisfy us. Well, maybe they can for a short while, but that's it. I could preach this a hundred times. I could preach this a hundred different ways. And some will still say, well, I know what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But if I just had that new, you fill in the blank. If I just had that new dress, that new car, that new house, that new job, that new promotion, that new wife, I'd just be so happy. It's a lie. You're not going to find happiness in, in all that stuff. Are we bombarded every day with advertisements about stuff that we're supposed to get that'll satisfy us? Got to have it. Got to have it. Read what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Ooh. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too, he says, is meaningless or futile. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And also, you have to have more insurance, don't you? What benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? You see, money and things will never satisfy us, and we need to have the appropriate attitude with respect to that. Only God can satisfy us. Here's lie number three. It's my money, and I can do whatever I want with it. Again, sounds like the truth. We say it all day. It's my money. It's my money. I've heard people say that. Christians, it's my money, and I can do with it as I please. I said, ooh, I'm stepping back a few steps. <laughs> it's all God's money. It's all God's money, and you and I are simply, what, managers of it. We have to have that perspective. It's not just in name only, from our heart. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. That's God talking. God speaks through the prophet Haggai. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. In Luke chapter 12, we see a Jesus telling another parable. And this parable uh, is about the, the rich man, remember him? And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man had produced a, gr a good crop. He thought to himself, what, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now this is telling. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him. Do you see the contrast there? I'll say to myself, but God is going to say, 
But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus comments on that. He says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. He doesn't say that you can't store up things. You can't have a savings. But you also must be what? Rich towards God. And the question is, are we rich towards God? That rich man in the parable thought he had all these wonderful possessions and could just sit back and enjoy them for the rest of his life. No, no. We're going to leave it all behind, aren't we? It's not ours. It all belongs to who? Yeah. We have to realize that everything, everything we have is on temporary loan from him. It's our privilege to be faithful managers of it for the time we're here on this earth. Our very life, we're managers, aren't we? Our families, our relationships, we're managers. These God entrusts to us. How well am I caring for my wife or my husband? How well am I caring for my children? How well am I caring for whatever God has entrusted to me? Am I being a good steward? So those, those are three lies that sound like the truth, but they're lies. Now let me share with you three truths that sound like lies, but they're the truth. Just the opposite. Here's the first truth. God is the one who determines how much money I have. Who determines how much money I have? God is. God is. Listen to what God says way back in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, you say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. In other words, guy's bragging. But remember that the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. We always thank him. God, thank you for giving me the ability. Thank you to produce a measure of wealth. You can go out there and you can say, look what I've done. I did this, I did that. But the truth is you had nothing to do with it. God is the one who gave you the ability. God is the one who opened the doors. God is the one who showed you favor. God is the one who provided. God is. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 33? How many know that verse? Everybody should know that verse, right? What does he tell us? Seek second or third, somewhere down the list of priorities, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? No, what does he say? Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, then all these things, all the stuff. So I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. The context is don't be anxious for anything. If you go back and read that chapter in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be anxious for anything. Don't run after this. Don't run after that. Don't be anxious about this or that or the other thing. No, he says the pagans run after that stuff. You put God first and he'll take care of everything else. God is the one who determines how much money we have. We don't. We don't. You and I need to have an appropriate attitude. God is the one who determines my income. Not me, not my boss, not my company, not my hard work, not my brilliance, not my creativity, not my charisma, nothing. God is the one who determines how much money I have. That may be hard to grasp, hard to get your mind around, but that is the truth. So it makes sense then that I put who first? I put God first. I put God first. What does Proverbs say? Acknowledge him in what? 
all of your ways. He always comes first. So truth number two. Truth number two, God has the power to shut down my company. He has the power to shut down my business, to dry up my source of income without a moment's notice. Do you believe that? Absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar realized this in the book of Daniel. In chapter 3 in the book of Daniel, remember the uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Where were they? they? They found themselves in what? A fiery furnace, right? Chapter 3. And they were being punished because they wouldn't bow down before the idol, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had built. But they didn't die in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks in. He sees a fourth person walking around in there with him. He orders them brought out of the furnace. There's not even a smell of smoke on them. Not a hair is tinged. They're just perfect. And so Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. After God saved them, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. In chapter, chapter uh, 3, he says, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Not only did he save them, now he promotes them and he acknowledges their God. Isn't that awesome? Then in chapter 4, over in chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, listen to this. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Mm-mm-mm. Just a year earlier, he's acknowledging the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now he's walking around in his palace. He's got some time on his hands. He's admiring his stuff. He says, look at all this. Look at what my hands have done. It's all mine. Now look at verses 31 and 33. In verse 31, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what voice do you think that might be coming from heaven? <laughs> Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you. In other words, seven years this is going to last. Will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So he's all pumped up with his old pride and he's not looking up acknowledging God. Immediately, what had been told about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So he's, he's, he's lost his mind. He's out there seven years just bereft of anything. Then in verse 34, we read this. 
At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Is that great? He's been, what? He's been humble, hasn't he? Seven years, he looks up. He looks up. What's he doing? He's acknowledging God. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to what? He is able to humble. God has the power to shut us down. God has the power to shut our business down, our company, dry up our source of income without a moment's notice. So we need to have a right attitude. Would you agree? We need to say, you know, I don't need to worry about, about the economy. Is the economy in our country in the toilet? Big time. $20 trillion. $20 trillion. We'll never pay that. It's just, it's going to be, it's coming apart at the seams. Do I worry about it? No. No. I need to focus my life in a manner that pleases him. Not on the things of this world. You turn on the news, you get depressed really quick. You get depressed really quick. You see, what happens on Monday morning when the stock market opens is not nearly as important as what happens on Saturday night or Sunday morning as God's people gather together on God's day as God's household to listen to God's word. This is far more important. We're acknowledging that God is the one who can lift us up. He's the one that can shut us down anytime he wants. And as Nebuchadnezzar said, whatever he does is right. It's right. We're not in control. God is. He is sovereignly in control of all things. He is in sovereign control of our lives. Here's the third truth. Giving to God is the only way out of my financial problems. Now, I know that that sounds like a lie, but it's the truth. Giving to God is the only way out of my financial problems. Now, if you have financial problems, you need to listen closely. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, he said, give and it what? It will be given to you. Now, do you, do you believe that? Is that just a, a slogan? Is he, just, is he out just sloganeering and saying things to tickle people's fancy? Or do you think that's actually true? That's known as the law of reciprocity. It's built into God's creation. It's just as sure as the law of gravity. Does the law of gravity work every time? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And just, 
just as the law of gravity works, the law of reciprocity works every time. What does it say? Give and it what? Maybe might be given to you. No, give and it will be given to you. Now, I've been pastoring for, I'm in my 36th year of doing this. And in all these years, I have watched people get into financial difficulty and financial problems. And the first place, once they're in those kind of financial difficulties, the first place they begin to cut back, guess where? On their giving. On their giving. You can mark this down. You can sign it, seal it, take it to the bank. When people get mad at the preacher, when they get mad at the church, the first thing they do is they stop giving. I'm going to show you. I don't agree with you. We're not giving anymore. You can be mad at me. That's okay. You're in good company. Lots of people are mad at me. But don't cut yourself off from the blessings of God. Don't cut your nose off to spite your face, as my mother used to say. Now, someone's going to say, well, Pastor, surely you aren't saying that with the problems I've got and the kind of debt that I've got that I ought to be giving back to God. God would not want me to give, would he? After all, look at the mess I'm in. And sometimes, sometimes we well-meaningly but mistakenly say to them, well, you know, God understands and he wouldn't want you to give. Like it's optional. No, it's not optional. God doesn't say that. The people who are in financial difficulty are the very people who need to give. Why? Listen to Jesus. Give and it will be given to you. Jesus, you said it. You said it. You said it. There's a story about an old shack out in the Arizona desert. Inside the shack is a water well, a pump, a jar of water, and a note. The note says, if you use this water to prime the pump, you will have all the water you want to drink. If you drink the water in the jar, throw away this note. Do you get it? The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, remember this. Remember this. This is an important point. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Again, a rephrasing of that law of reciprocity. God is the one who owns it all. And God is the one who distributes it all. It's not ours. It's not our business. It's not our company. It's not our abilities. It's not our work ethic. It's not our brilliance. It's God. It all begins and ends with God. And until we get that right, nothing else will work. Absolutely nothing. It's God. So we need to look at our attitude towards these things. We need to say, you know, I'm willing to trust God. And I'm willing to begin to give faithfully, systematically, and generously each week. So God can bless me out of my financial problems. He says, test me in this. Test me. And he will. Amen? Amen. Is this a good reminder? Yes, it is. Absolutely. How's your attitude about giving? Let's pray. Lord, you know each and every one of us, and you know your plans for us. 
You know what your will is for our lives. You know what your will is for our church. And Lord, as we anticipate um, great changes in the future, I pray, Lord, that we would all be of one mind and one heart as we anticipate just what you're doing. We give you thanks tonight. Mm -hmm. And Lord, help us all to be shrewd, serious managers of the, whatever you've entrusted to us. Money, relationships, time, energy. Lord, that we be good stewards. We put you first. That we acknowledge you in all of our ways. Have your way in our life, oh God. We love you tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.